Hello. Thank you for joining us. I hope you feel God has been speaking to you through these talks and through this time. I think it's been particularly a point to set aside time to listen to God and to his word while we have still got this enforced quiet lockdown. If you remember last time I spoke to you about Psalm 100, particularly verse 3, where it says, Know that the Lord himself is God. It's he that's made us. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. I think it's just so important to recognise that dependency, that connection, that he is God and, and we are not, we're his people. And this talk really follows on from that. It's actually one verse from Psalm 115, which says these words, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and because of your faithfulness. And this, is, this verse is a prayer. It's a really insightful, quite a deep prayer. It's about heart alignment, focus and adoration. And I want to try and break it down into three sections. Firstly, taking three phrases, if you like. Firstly, to your name be the glory. Another way of saying that would be the very familiar, hallowed be your name. A great way to bring to begin any prayer or any day. In biblical terms and in biblical language, a name was extremely important. We say, hallowed be your name. We're referring to the person, the very essence of the person's being. The name represents their character, their personality, what makes them them. It may be obvious, but in biblical times, a person's name was interchangeable with them. And I could take the word name out of here and it would still make sense. To you be the glory. And yet names are important in Bible terms because they tell us about the person. If somebody has a name, then they're knowable. They're relatable to. And, and seeking to know them, we find out, or seeking to know their name, we find out more about them. We know their person and we can relate rightly to them. Names are fascinating, aren't they? I'm sure if you were close to us, uh, had fellowship over a table meal, and our family know this very well, that I always enjoy finding out the meaning of names and their background. The point of saying all this is that God has a name. And he reveals himself through that name. God has a name is actually the title of a very helpful book by John Mark Comer. And it's primarily based on Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 4 is where God says to Moses that he will, he will say his name to him. He will reveal himself to him. It's actually this passage, which is a really important passage in terms of even Jewish worship today. This passage contains more... Um, this passage is referred to and alluded to far more than any other passage... Uh, in the scriptures we read references to it often without realizing we're reading references to it but let, let me just read it to you then says the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name the Lord or Yahweh I am that I am and in passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord the Lord the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger 
abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgivingness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. These words describe God's being. When you ask what someone is like, a physical description could be helpful to identify somebody. But it's not so helpful if you really want to know them. I remember well myself and ask any teenage boy their ideal partner in life. And they're wholly focused on what that person looks like. They may say blonde or brunette, a certain height, five foot eight, usually relating to their own height. Or if you ask a young teenage girl, she's probably going to say the same thing in regard to I want to marry a tall, handsome, maybe dark man. But later on in life, you realise that the features that really define someone, that really tell you who they are, are not the physical characteristics, but actually their, 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 their heart, their personality, their character, their kindness, their tenderness, their love, their patience. And the Bible tells us these things are far more highly prized. And when the Bible describes who God is, of course, God is spirit. But it describes the depth of his character and his nature. I don't know about you, but it's something of the wisdom of the Lord in Scripture that we have four Gospels, <clears throat> which are mini biographies, <clears throat> excuse me, of the life of Jesus. Yet none of them, as far as I know, hint or even begin to hint at what Jesus looked like, his physical description. All I think we really know by that is what Isaiah tells us in chapter 53, that there was nothing particular about him that we should desire him. There was nothing about his physical presence that was noteworthy. The glory, as in the tabernacle, was veiled. And it was only on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and James and John where the glory that was within him shone out. And they were awed at God's presence. But the Gospels do tell us what Jesus was really like, what God was really like. It tells us, for example, that Jesus gave himself to people that he met. He was gracious. It tells us that he was moved by the needs and the pain of people, that he was compassionate. It shows us on several occasions that Jesus became angry. He was angry with his disciples when they wouldn't let the children come to him. He was angry with the people in the temple when they turned what should have been a house of prayer for all the nations into a kind of commercial enterprise for their own benefit. He was even angry with death at the tomb of Lazarus. But Jesus' anger, and what an interesting Bible study that would be, angry with hypocrisy, angry with people who stood in the way of people coming further to the Father. But his anger was also always measured, always deliberate, always in a sense chosen. He was slow to anger. He laid down his life. He was abounding in love. And he saw it all through. The, the work that the Father gave to him, he completed it. He was faithful. He touched so many people. He showed love to thousands. He forgave people. I hope you get the point now. He was, as the writer to the Hebrews says, the exact representation of God the Father's being. He was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving. Jesus said in John 17 verse 26, 
very interesting words. He said, <clears throat> I've made your name known to them, Father, and I will continue to make it known. Actually, most translations take the word name out because they think we don't need to know it. I've made you known. And that's fair enough because that's what he's doing. But actually what he said was, I've made your name known. Because in scriptural context, the name of the Lord is very important. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall not misuse that which is him. Understanding who Jesus is, understanding who God is, 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 is revealed through understanding his person. And as the Lord makes himself known to us, he challenges us and that truth is instilled in us by his spirit. So we want to imitate him and be like him as we contemplate him. And I hope you're doing that at this time and wondering at him. We are changed. Paul says these words as we contemplate him. As we behold him, as we behold his glory, we are transformed. We are changed from one degree of glory to another. You cannot look deeply at who God is without wanting and desiring and even experiencing that change that, that that transformation and he is the object of our worship and i'm not talking about singing i'm talking about our contemplation of, of admiring who he is it's so important to contemplate him it's so easy for us to distort our view of god and i was thinking if somebody was to draw a really beautiful picture and somebody else less skilled was to copy it and someone else less skilled was to copy that and even if i who's not very good at drawing copied that what you would end up with is is a distorted image of the of the original and you wouldn't recognize it and and sadly that's what religion can do with its detachment and and, and its removal from that intimacy and presence of seeing god revealed to your heart and wanting in the beauty of of, of him to be changed it's important that we see him like he is and, and Jesus revealed the Father to us, to your, uh, to your name, God be the glory. And then there's this promise that Jesus goes on to say here. He says, I've made your name known to them and continue to make it known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and I in them. And the only way we can really receive God's love deep into our hearts and for you, God, to come and rest in our hearts is for us to understand you, to see you, to get to know you. And that's what's behind this prayer of, of let the glory be to your name. Lord, today may I see you, may I open up my heart to you. And then slightly going back to the beginning of the prayer, he says, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And you might think that's a really obvious prayer, yet it's a really necessary one. What are we like? What What, what is the us? Well, we have quite rightly, I think, and helpfully focused in the recent part in, in, in ministry on you know, how God's made us, our original design and the glory and beauty of that, how God has deposited in us something of his, uh, himself and his creativity and, and, and the joy for God, what God has made us to be. But when we look at these things, we mustn't neglect the fact that we have, through Adam, inherited what the Bible calls a, a sinful nature. And the sinful nature needs to be put to death every day, if not every hour. Because the mindset on the sinful nature is hostile towards God and it cannot please God. 
I read recently a, a, a phrase I liked, which was this, that we are in the resistance movement. And what the author meant by that was that we are to resist the temptations we see in the world. We are to resist the devil and his schemes. And most difficult of all, we are to resist the deceitful part of our heart. Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is desperately sick and deceitful above all else. And our heart is deceived from seeing him and honouring him for who he is in our distractions. As the hymn writer um, Robert Robertson wrote, a very tender age of 22, very, very perceptively, these wonderful words about his own heart. He said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord, the God I love. Let me just read the whole of that verse to you. It says, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. O take and seal it, seal it for your courts above. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Keep me focused, not to us, O Lord, not to us. But to your name be the glory. Keep my eyes on you. Strip away my selfish pride. And speaking to myself, I know I'm speaking to all of us because sadly we all have inherited the same sinful nature that needs to be put to death. The old man, the man that was in bondage to the sinful nature, he has been crucified. But scripture tells us that we need by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Whatever we have, we've received from him. We are to the praise of the glory of his grace. We're often tempted, aren't we, to let some of the glory of God just rub a little bit off on us, have some of the credit, make us look good. It feeds that insatiable desire of the orphan heart that sometimes comes lurking in our hearts for recognition from the wrong sources. But that glory doesn't belong to us, it belongs to him. It's a trespass to take it or share it. He's given us his whole life to share. He's given us his very nature to share. He's given us his glory to share. But the praise and the honour, it's his. We didn't contribute to it. Let the praise that we have, let it come from him. You may have heard of Ravi Zacharias. He's a very influential ambassador for the gospel, a great apologist evangelist. He died in just a couple of weeks ago. And one of the expressions that he used really resonates with me and he used it a lot. And I'm going to just try it out on you and it's quite shocking. I'm going to pause in the middle to see what you think of it. He says these words, Jesus Christ did not come into the world to make bad people good. What do you think of that? What he said was this, Jesus Christ came into the world to make dead people live. And when you think about that, there's a lot of good theology in that statement. If Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, says these words in, in chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you are saved. And God raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
You see, God doesn't resurrect living people or half-dead people. He only resurrects dead people. And that was our spiritual condition. That's what we brought to the party. We were dead in trespasses and sins. If you were dead and raised to life, all the glory is his. A dead man brings nothing to his resurrection, only his deadness. So the life that we have, we now have by the Spirit of God and all the glory is his. To you be the glory, not to us. Which brings me on to my third phase, if you like. It says, it says, to your name be the glory because of your love and because of your faithfulness. And it's our thankfulness and gratitude to God for his love and faithfulness that glorifies him. These are tremendous words, love and faithfulness. You remember back in Exodus 34, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's where Psalm 115 gets that and Psalm 117. And as you read through, you'll see it again and again. Love here is the Hebrew word pronounced something like kesed. And I understand it's very hard to find an English equivalent to this word. Sometimes people use the word love, sometimes steadfast love, sometimes loving kindness. Sometimes covenant love, or even mercy, it's translated. Its New Testament equivalent is agape, God's love, but it's also grace, it's also mercy, it's also favour. It's one of the key characteristics of God, mentioned twice in that list in Exodus 34. Abounding in love, maintaining love. This word occurs multiple times in the Hebrew writings, over 250 times, and in the Psalms, half of those are in the Psalms. And very often it's linked with this word faithfulness, which is the Hebrew word amet. And this word carries the underlying sense of God's reliability, his truth, his certainty, his dependability. He cannot deny himself, therefore he is faithful. His character is faithfulness. He is faithful to the end. He's faithful to my soul. Steadfast covenant love combined with truth and faithfulness provides a powerful revealing of who God is. Faithfulness and love, love and faithfulness, one word defining and complementing the other, together creating this unbreakable bond of the love of God. We see this in the cross, don't we? God working out his covenant love God so loved the world that he gave. And in his faithfulness, seeing it through and raising from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. This love and faithfulness doesn't stand on our ability or strength. We stand on it. Loving kindness and faithfulness. Lord, not to us, not to us be the glory because of your love, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. I'd just like to close with a very short prayer. Lord, you bound your heart to us in love and faithfulness at the cross and through your Holy Spirit. Lord, bind our wandering hearts to you in love and in faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.